Hello and welcome to the Rogers Brief for February 23rd, 2024. I'm Adam Rogers. Thank you for watching and thank you for listening. We're going to cover a few Nova Scotia stories to start off with and then get into some national legal news. And then uh, I'm going to finish off with kind of a fun story in a way, but uh, an unusual thing. Legislation out of British Columbia on pets and how they are to be treated how they are to be handled during uh, separations and divorces so uh, groundbreaking legislation as far as the canadian uh, law is concerned and uh, so we'll end with that uh, some interesting news there so uh, nova scotia cases there's been some new judges appointed uh, follow-up on lyle howe and then a follow-up on a case that i've covered not recently, because it hasn't been in the news recently, but over the last couple of years, this uh, Peter Morehouse, the former head of the Better Biz Business Bureau in Nova Scotia. <clears throat> then uh, nationally, uh, Cameron Ortis, uh, whose sentence was just, uh, we just discussed that uh, last couple of weeks, uh, he has appealed. Nathaniel Veltman was sentenced. Uh, this was the... Uh, 23-year-old who drove his truck and killed a family in London, Ontario in 2021. Chris Barber, one of the leaders or figureheads of the uh, truckers' convoy, is suing the federal government. We'll talk about that. And a little news out of the foreign interference inquiry as well. Uh, so we'll come to that. Starting off with uh, Nova Scotia and just a note on some judicial, not appointments, but new uh, positions as for some judges all right there's four that I want to uh, mention taking place uh, just this past week one is uh, Justice Robin Gogan uh, judge out of Sydney from the Supreme Court has been elevated to the Nova Scotia Court of Appeal uh, so that's a big step up for Justice Gogan good reputation as a Supreme Court judge and a lawyer before that uh, Justice Les Jesudison has been named the Associate Chief Justice of the Supreme Court Family Division in Nova Scotia. Uh, judge, uh, two judges have been named Associate uh, Chief Judges of the Provincial Court, and those are uh, Judge Rhonda Vanderhoek and Judge Shane Russell. Uh, judge Vanderhoek is based out of the Valley, Judge Russell out of Sydney. Both uh, former Crown prosecutors and uh, notable that uh, now the three judges at the head of the provincial court in Nova Scotia are all former Crown prosecutors. Perry Borden, Judge Perry Borden is the chief judge of the provincial court in Nova Scotia. All former prosecutors, not former defense counsel. Uh, although just Judge Vanderhoek did work in uh, as a legal aid lawyer before she was a crown prosecutor so there's uh, there is that the other thing of note i guess uh, and that'll include judge borden in this that a lot of the judges that are now in uh, positions of authority and positions of leadership within the judiciary in nova scotia are fairly new judges judge borden was just named like a year and a half ago, two years ago maybe. Uh, Judge Russell, the same thing. Judge Russell I know quite well. Of course, he was uh, in quite one of the two inquiry counsel on the Desmond inquiry. Uh, judge Vanderhoek, uh, just named a judge in the last couple of years. Same with uh, Justice Jesudison. So uh, 
I guess a new, uh, a new, uh, a new era of leadership within the Nova Scotia judiciary. So we'll keep an eye on that and see how everybody gets along. Good reputations all around, so I'm sure everybody will do just fine. All right, following up on a story that was in the news uh, last week and I talked about, which was the Lyle Howe a Court of Appeal victory. And Lyle Howe must have been, uh, he must have been getting too many kudos from people or congratulations because the Bar Society has uh, felt the need to issue a, uh, quote, uh, a clarification. They said that the, some of the media coverage around Lyle Howe's appeal victory quote, requires clarification, close quote. Begs the question, they don't say this in the release, short release, were they getting phone calls from people that were confused by this, uh, or is this of their own volition? Uh, who knows? Okay, so the uh, Court of Appeal decision, Lyle Howe was disbarred over allegations, then during that hearing there was a further complaint made, and he was, he was still disbarred, but there was a further complaint made by the Bar Society, uh, initiated by their, their legal counsel, uh, and so Lyle Howe's taken action for malicious prosecution over the second uh, set of allegations, but the Bar Society wanted to make sure that it was clear to everybody that Lyle Howe is still disbarred, that the Court of Appeal decision did not affect the original disbarment decision, and uh, so I don't know if that was a necessary clarification but in their mind it required it so there you go unusual uh, thing to do they can't get enough of Lyle Howe at the Bar Society all right so uh, third thing Nova Scotia related is this uh, finally after many delays I think it was in court four or five times for sentencing but delayed each time is this sentencing hearing of uh, sentencing decision and hearing of uh, Peter Morehouse Peter Morehouse former uh, head of the Better Business Bureau, Nova Scotia, uh, fairly prominent in, in the business community, certainly individual, uh, pled guilty to uh, child pornography charges, uh, which involved uh, not active, uh, there was no direct contact with any child, it was text messages between Mr. Morehouse and another individual for which he apologized. They were so bad they couldn't, uh, they couldn't publish them in the court uh, reports. So uh, he was sentenced to two years, and this was done by joint recommendation. Uh, Ian Hutchison was his uh, defense lawyer. He had originally announced or, or made signs that he was going to challenge the mandatory minimum sentences. There was uh, two charges, two child pornography charges one-year minimum sentence on each. Now I don't see in the, I, I, there's, it's not covered in the in the newspaper article as to whether there was an argument to be made as to whether those one-year minimum sentences could have been served concurrently uh, rather than consecutively, but uh, Mr. Morehouse has agreed through his lawyer to uh, a joint recommendation of two years in jail so he'll serve that in a federal facility. If you're two years or above, you go to federal uh, custody. Uh, some people, if you're close to the two-year line, some accused will say they would rather go to a, a federal facility. There's more services available, educational counseling and such uh, services available. And it's uh, apparently a more stable environment uh, rather than the 
uh, frequent in and outs, changing, uh, changing who's around you, situation of the provincial uh, facilities. All right, and we've heard many things about the provincial facilities lately in Nova Scotia with the overcrowding, the understaffing, and, uh, and such, so lack of services. In any event, uh, Peter Morehouse sentenced to uh, two years. All right, so those are the uh, those are the Nova Scotia cases that I want to uh, cover. National stories. I'm going to start with uh, Cameron Ortis. Uh, this was the uh, National Security um, RCMP intelligence uh, officer who was convicted of uh, sharing secrets with uh, a target of our RCMP and Canadian intelligence investigations. During the trial, which was an unusual feature of the trial, there was many things that uh, couldn't be covered, couldn't be released to the public, couldn't be, uh, wouldn't even allow people in the courtroom to hear the testimony. And then Cameron Ortis himself, part of his defense was, no, I wasn't sharing these secrets. I was trying to effectively entrap these people into using an email service that he had designed or, or was familiar with to get them to use an email service that could be traced and tracked and all those things. Uh, and what always struck me as very unusual about the claim was that Ortis, a senior intelligence officer, was to be paid $20,000 for this information, which seemed like it would have been worth millions of dollars if, in fact, it had been done for nefarious purposes. In any event, uh, the appeal has been filed and Cameron Ortis is claiming that he could not effectively defend himself because of the restrictions placed on him during the trial to not be able to discuss national, sensitive national security matters. So in other words, he couldn't name the people he was trying to entrap, he couldn't name, uh, he couldn't describe the operation in detail and that severely limited his defense and led to his conviction is his claim on the appeal. So. We'll keep an eye out on, on that. That's uh, Appeals can take some time to develop and be heard. Uh, certainly one would expect it to be heard within the year, perhaps quicker, but uh, we'll see. Uh, hasn't no, uh, no word in the article as to whether the appeal, well, there hasn't been an, even a defense yet to the a response to the appeal, so we'll wait to see on the timing of that as well. <clears throat> All right, another big national story is this... Uh, Sentencing of Nathaniel Veltman. Nathaniel Veltman was convicted of uh, of murder, first degree murder, and the killing of four uh, members of a family, family of all uh, Muslim individuals. There was four killed and a serious injury to a fifth, a nine-year-old child. Veltman was 23 years old at the time. This was in June of 2021 and drove his truck into the family deliberately. Now the question was whether this was to be considered an act of terrorism and the judge uh, this week completed the sentencing hearing and said yes it was an act of terrorism. It was done deliberately because of the ethnic uh, uh, origin of the family involved, Veltman's uh, own ideological uh, I guess, ideological views of the whole thing. And so what does this mean? Uh, in a sense, it doesn't mean anything at the moment. So Veltman was sentenced to 25 years, life in prison, not eligible for parole until uh, 25 years time, which is uh, the maximum. 
So what happens? In 25 years' time, when he's eligible for parole, the fact that he was convicted of acts of terrorism will be considered at the time of parole, making his uh, ability, severely reducing his ability to get parole at that time in 25 years' time, no matter what. Uh, guys uh, 23, 26, year, 25 years old now, so he would be in jail at least until he's 50 and probably well beyond that. All right, next story. Chris Barber, one of uh, two, one of two uh, so-called, depending on the circumstances and what are their interests are, leaders of the Freedom Convoy, the Trucker Convoy out of Ottawa. He's, uh, I say that because in his criminal trial, he and Tamara Litch are both charged criminally with mischief, among other charges, uh, resisting arrest. And so in that part of the, and in inciting others to, uh, to do unlawful acts, part of the case in the criminal context is to identify him as a leader of the emergent, or sorry, of the trucker convoy, someone who was able to direct others to uh, commit mischief, to disrupt the police activity, and so on. Well, it's funny, every time the, the, some other story comes up about him, like this one, he's described as a leader of the trucker convoy, the freedom uh, convoy, however it's framed. Anyway, in this t case, this follows the federal court decision on the Emergencies Act invocation, which said basically that, well, that the government violated the charter rights of those people and one of the primary focus points of the decision on the Emergencies Act at the federal court was the seizing of bank accounts from not only individuals involved but people around them. Well Chris Barber, uh, his wife and his trucking company all had their assets seized, their bank accounts seized and, and frozen. So he's suing the federal government saying that his charter rights were breached. Well, the court has already determined that from the frozen accounts that he was unable to conduct basic financial transactions, could not they could not live normal lives, that there was they were excluded from modern society and that it damaged their personal and business relationships. That's him, his wife and his trucking company. So we'll see uh, what kind of damages they're able to show from this. Difficult part of this from uh, Barber's perspective is he's going to have to basically establish that not only did he lose money uh, after his bank accounts were frozen, but that you could tie the say, say if he lost clients, lost uh, you know, lost customers, that that was related to the bank accounts being frozen and not able to transact business, versus, oh my God, the guy we're doing business with is leading this uh, trucker convoy, and we don't want anything to do with him anymore. If it's part one. Uh, the first part of this, that can be tied to this lawsuit and laid at the feet of the federal government. If it's the second, well, obviously that's Chris Barber's uh, fault himself, and people are free to do business with whomever they wish. So uh, we'll see how that develops. As um, Well, next step will be for the federal government to file a defense. They have not done so yet, and to uh, uh, see if that claim settles or or what. I wouldn't be surprised if uh, Chris Barber finds himself in another courtroom uh, dealing with basically the same material as he is in the criminal case.
same subject matter. All right, uh, so from one, uh, well, that wasn't the inquiry, but uh, it was the subject of an inquiry to another, the Foreign Interference Inquiry. I talked about this a little bit last week, and Commissioner Marie-José Hogue uh, has some more troubles now. Last week I was talking about how she was going to handle a secret classified uh, national intelligence information. Now uh, we're starting to have some parties drop out of the process, out of just, well, similar concerns. These uh, members of diaspora communities are concerned about the level of access that certain participants in the inquiry have and how that may be used against them. So these are the, the people, the groups that are concerned, these are participants in the inquiry, the Canadian Friends of Hong Kong and the Uyghur Rights Advocacy Project, both uh, both based out of, well, based out of Canada, but uh, connected to uh, Chinese groups. The concerns they have are the strong ties, alleged, uh, allegedly strong ties to Chinese consulates and their proxies that three of the other participants have. These are Member of Parliament Han Dong, who was a Liberal Member of Parliament, removed from Liberal Caucus, now sitting as an Independent, alleged to have uh, ties to the Chinese government, alleged to have told the Chinese government to hold off on negotiating with the, the two Michaels, Kovrig and Spaver, who were kidnapped uh, by the Chinese government, uh, has full participatory rights. In other words, at the inquiry, is able to see all of the documents that are part of the inquiry. So wouldn't be able to see unredacted security documents, but would be able to see every document, even if it's not entered as an exhibit in the proceedings. Same goes for former Ontario member of provincial parliament, Michael Chan, alleged to have connections to the Chinese consulates and their proxies. The third is a senator, uh, Yuan Pao Wu, who is not a full participant in the inquiry, an intervener only, so would only have access to those documents, just like any other well, member of the public even, have access to the documents that are made an exhibit within the inquiry. So the greater concern, I think, is the uh, Member of Parliament, uh, Han Dong, and member, former Member of Provincial Parliament, uh, Chan. But in any event, these two groups have dropped out, undermining, uh, in part at least, the inquiry itself. And I know that Justice Hogue is, uh, claims at least to be trying to make efforts to to ease their fears, talk about security measures they have in place over information. I'm not sure that's going to do it. But uh, So the Uyghur Rights Advocacy Group dropped out about a month ago, the Canadian Friends of Hong Kong, just last week. And it'll be uh, hard to know at this point what it would take to get them back, but uh, that certainly is a problem for the inquiry uh, itself and something they'll need to address. Really, the uh, charges that the MP and the MPP were actually connected in some way to the Chinese government have never really been uh, thoroughly debunked uh, or examined so uh, they may have legitimate concerns there. Okay so uh, last thing, uh, alright those are the uh, the national news stories. This is a sort of a under the radar national news story. I saw it in uh, the uh, Canadian Bar Association publication and it's uh, which covers sort of new and interesting 
pieces of legislation, case law, uh, some nuanced stuff across the country. And the article was entitled, In the Animal's Best Interest. Uh, British Columbia, under the leadership of my former classmate and friend uh, David Eby, is bringing in legislation on, uh, well, sorry, has enacted legislation. It's enacted as of January 15th of this year. Uh, legislating that an animal's best interests need to be considered in a separation or divorce. So, currently, uh, currently it's... Uh, Whoever and, and in other provinces like Nova Scotia or other wells, other places, who acquired the pet, who paid for the pet, that's about it. It's treated like, you know, a piece of furniture, a vehicle, any other piece of property. Well, uh, now, and in, of course, uh, you know, in divorce cases, uh, people will fight over everything. But a, a pet is certainly something that's very close to uh, to everybody's heart many people's heart. Now, so under this legislation, you have to consider multiple factors, including the ability and willingness of each individual to care for the animal, the relationship of a child with the animal. So if a child's going to stay with one parent and they have a close relationship, well, that would obviously affect, if not determine, where the animal goes. And then any history or threat of violence or cruelty to the animal is to be taken into account. And the, the article describes, so that now an animal, a pet, is more akin to children than to property. And so uh, all of those considerations will be taken into account. It doesn't matter who pays for it or paid for the animal or who do, did anything to acquire the animal. It's where what's in the animal's best interest and in the child's best interest, too, if the child is tightly connected. So this is uh, new legislation for Canada, but it's not new legislation overall. Other some states have this: Alaska, Maine, New York, Delaware, Illinois, New Hampshire, and California all have legislation of this nature. Uh, Spain, Portugal, and France all have this too, uh, treating pets as sentient beings. Actually, Quebec, in their civil code, has that too, as treating them as sentient beings, but doesn't really go on in detail like the BC legislation does to describe how that is to be enacted in practice when uh, uh, when a separation takes place. But one would assume that that's what it means is to uh, take into account all these uh, special factors. So there you go. Uh, you know, soon we'll see. It's unusual, but uh, every once in a while you'll see cases where uh, children in separation cases or in child protection cases are given a lawyer. They're not, uh, you know, legally competent to, but they're given a lawyer uh, to speak for them, to um, to advocate for them. I wonder if we're on the cusp of seeing, uh, you know, cats and dogs being appointed lawyers to, uh, you know, advocate for their interests in divorce cases. It would be fascinating to to see that happen. It would be fascinating to be the lawyer that makes it happen or that uh, that has to fulfill that role, I should say. So okay, that's uh, it's funny, you know, the things that uh, the things that hold up a settlement in a divorce case, uh, you know, tens of thousands of dollars can go back and forth, and uh, you know, people just sort of all right, whatever. Uh, but obviously, child custody and those questions 
are very contentious. I can expect now that uh, pets are going to become probably more contentious uh, under this new legislation, but it is good. It's good legislation. I, I support its uh, enactment. I wouldn't be surprised to see other provinces follow suit now that British Columbia has, uh, has broken the ice on this. So uh, we'll watch for, for that from other provinces uh, as they, they see it unfold in BC. Often a leader in uh, legal innovations in Canada, uh, certainly. So uh, keeping up its reputation that way. Okay, uh, that's it for this week. Uh, thank you, everybody, for watching, and we'll uh, we'll see you next week, and we'll see you Sunday night as well. We're going to be back. Uh, Jordan uh, is back from Toronto, I think, for uh, the Sunday night show with uh, Jordan, uh, Paul Palango, myself. So we'll see you at uh, 9.15 Sunday night on YouTube Live. Got some dirty weather coming in Nova Scotia again, so everybody look after yourselves, clear your drains and all those kinds of things, and we'll uh, see you next time.